The next chapter with Prim's Ripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former Notre Dame and NFL offensive lineman Mike Golick Jr. I'm sure many of you have gotten to know Mike during his six years or so at ESPN as a radio personality, as a college football analyst, also as a hilarious human being and also a donut cookie eating enthusiast. He has many things. Well, I wanted to bring Mikey, as I call him, on again because I'm catching him at a very pivotal period in his life. He's about to start a brand new chapter, which involves a new job, a new city, a new home, and a new company, and also probably a new identity. And with this transition, he is now having to say goodbye to a place, which includes Connecticut and ESPN, two places that he's known for a very, very long time. So I was curious about how he's processing this new chapter in his life as he launches this new show called Gojo with Mike Golig Jr. alongside DraftKings, which by the way, you have to check out because it's really good. And I say bring him on again because it wasn't literally the night before the interview that I realized that this is now the third time I'm interviewing him in the past several years. I interviewed him the first time in 2017 for our Second Life documentary, which chronicled my professional tennis comeback. And in that interview, we talked about his transition from football. But then I interviewed him a couple of years ago for the next chapter in 2020. But during that time, it was only 10 or 15 minutes and he gave us a nice, hilarious, again, tour of his West Hartford, Connecticut apartment and showing us what he was up to during the pandemic. But this time around, I wanted it to be much more serious. I wanted it to be a deeper dive and a deeper conversation about his life and his identities and how he's processing his departure from Connecticut and ESPN. Again, two places that have been a tremendous part of his life since he was a child. And I was also curious if his departure and exit from ESPN was somehow prompted or even inspired by his father's exit from ESPN. I'm sure many of you know his father, Mike Golick Sr., also a wonderful human being, but also a Notre Dame alum, just like Mike, Mikey, a former NFL player, and also somebody who was with the company for two decades and one of the faces and the co-host of one of their most popular shows, The Mike and Mike Morning Show. So in this hour-long interview, we unpack a lot. We talk about Mike Jr.'s complicated journey of both maintaining his relationship with his father, his mentor, somebody he looks up to, while attempting to become his own person, which is not always an easy thing for offspring to do, especially when they involuntarily sometimes have to live in the shadows of one of their parents. And within the same topic, we also discuss his continuing battle with the nepotism label, as he calls it, and how he's learned to protect himself from people, mostly fans and those outside his entrusted circle, who constantly point out his position of privilege, as if to say he wouldn't be where he is without his father. And of course, I have to point out that that could be nothing further from the truth, because I've seen firsthand just how hard Mikey works and also just how good he is. And he was great from day one. I saw it firsthand during his first week at ESPN and we worked that entire NFL season together in 2016. 
And while this show is primarily aimed at showing the humanistic side of athletes, I think this interview really did just that, but maybe in like in a different tone. It did show the humanistic side of sports because Mikey is a former athlete. But in this sense, it showed the humanistic side of sport and his journey as a sports media personality. I really hope you enjoy this deep dive with him. So without further ado, here's Mike Golick Jr. And after many, many, many minutes of catching up, we fast forward to the part about us talking about his post-college journey, including his roller coaster experience at the pro level, and then him making his way into sports media. Hi, Fran. <laughs> that was my formal intro. Do you like it? <laughs> I do. You know what? As, as we learned long ago in John Swatsky's interview seminars, sometimes <laughs> yeah. brevity is the way to go. We have trimmed the fat off yeah. opens and just gotten to the core. I know. For those that didn't hear, I just did a, a countdown, the typical like TV three, two, one. And I was just like, hey, Mikey, <laughs> like that's it. That's just all I get. <laughs> How are you doing, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. It's nice to talk to you again. It, it's I know become this sort of like fun. I, I choose to look at it as fun in this phenomenon in my with my friends in media where I get yeah. to talk to and catch up with a lot of people on a podcast on something like that, which you know, some people would look at and say like, all right, like, is this for content, whatever? I'm like, no, this is how we communicate. We all have things going on. I am always happy when someone decides that, you know, I, I am someone, you know, they valued enough or had enough of a relationship enough to talk to on whatever their platform is. So this is always fun for me. I always think these are cool. I'm so excited to talk to you today for a variety of reasons. I'm excited to learn more from you and about you. Because I think that's like the awesome thing about these conversations is in many ways, like you said, it allows me to catch up with old friends, but it also allows me to ask questions that I don't think I would typically ask in a personal setting, whether it was just like, you know, we're getting coffee or drinks and or whatever else. So I'm just really excited to dive into all these different areas of your life that maybe we haven't talked about. And maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe you have or have not talked about. Um, but firstly, I just want to say congratulations on your new podcast. I'm catching you at a really good time because I feel like you're embarking on this major new chapter. And I have to point out that just last night, it occurred to me that I've now interviewed, this is my third time interviewing you on the show. Yes. Like, because Ben pointed, my husband pointed that out. He's like, oh, in 2017, we interviewed you for Second Life, the documentary. I was like, I forgot about that. Oh my God, I totally forgot. And then I interviewed you during the pandemic in 2020. So I wanted to ask you, what do you make of the fact that this is my third time interviewing you? And I haven't even interviewed any of my guests on the next chapter twice, but I'm interviewing you three times. Listen, I am honored by that. I don't know <laughs> what I did to deserve this distinction. I don't think I'm nearly that interesting. Hopefully the people listening do and they continue to listen and listen to all the other great things that you've done. But uh, no, it, it's, it, you know what? I, I always just think it, it's, it's nice that 
we have all through this job or through whatever job we've been a part of, like formed bonds enough to where we all feel comfortable doing that. And, you know, hopefully continue to like, that's that this is all about is getting into this line of business. I think more and more is about trying to create and find community, which is kind of what everything's about. But I I think especially for us, it kind of leads to these moments, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 2017, I interviewed you for our second live documentary and we were talking about your transition from football. And then in 2020, during the pandemic, I interviewed you for the next chapter when we were dealing with the whole COVID situation. And so you gave us a nice tour of your West Hartford apartment, I think it was, and showing us like your lovely couch and what was in the fridge. So this time, (laughs) I think we're going to have a much different conversation. But before we begin, do you have any questions for me? Um, I don't have any questions for you. I'm just, I'm kind of, (laughs) listen, at this point now, I've been doing my own podcast for about four weeks as of the taping of this show. And so I've been so used to, you know, kind of having to drive the ship a little more, you know, we're a a more Spartan operation. So I've got my hands in a few more parts of the process than usual. So I'm very excited to just follow you on this journey through this podcast. I am a very happy passenger. I love it. I love it. I could tell that you were not prepared for that question um, because very rarely does a host does a host ever say like, hey, do you have any questions like during the recording? And then another question I'm going to ask you is, is there anything that you know the concept of this show and you know kind of the direction in which I, I take it, but do you have any questions about yourself or any other areas in your life, at least when it comes to the intersection of your multiple identities, sport and personal life? Is there anything that you're interested in exploring? Um, I think I'm always interested. And I know like I think about this through myself and my own maturity a fair amount. But um, sports maturity to me is a very weird concept. I was talking about Hmm. this to someone the other day because I always thought that through my own personal experience being around teammates that being in a locker room for, you know, into, you know, deep into college for guys that go into professional sports as well. There's parts of it that I think like, and I don't want to sound this in a way that's disrespectful, but in my mind, like there were areas where I thought, oh, you know what? Like it kind of stunted my growth as far as having to learn how to take care of myself in certain ways that were always supplied by the team, the mentality you have when you are playing a game, albeit one that's highly professionalized in all these different ways that we've seen in college and certainly professional sports. But I think you've got that on one side where in some ways you mature a little slower because you're in that environment for so long. And then in yeah. other ways, especially in professional sports, when we see 22-year-olds handed life-changing sums of money, and now all of a sudden, we expect them to grow up overnight. We expect them to be able to lead and change franchises, to be CEOs. And so I think it's an interesting tug of war in what some of the sport I think, and I should probably use more me in this, because I think for me, there were ways that I felt like, wow, those were immature things that I was doing in that environment for longer than maybe I would have otherwise. And then conversely, now as someone in my, you know, getting to my mid thirties, looking at kids entering the draft right now, who all of a sudden have the weight of this world placed on them and who are going to have all these expectations from the communities that they play in, from their families, from people that have been in their lives and are expected to grow up and all of a sudden be able to shoulder that load really quick. 
Yeah, sport maturity. I actually, I've never heard anybody really reference it in that way or, or explain it in that way. But that's something that definitely came up a couple of weeks ago when we aired Greg Oden's uh, interview, the former number one overall pick. And that's exactly what he talked about. He was just basically this overnight sensation and was dubbed this like savior for Portland. And he was just talking about how no one gives you a manual for how to prepare for that type of stage. And you're right that I feel like society, media as well, kind of like places this pressure and also this expectation that like, we assume that just because somebody is physically and looks mature, that we expect them to be mature on a personal level. And that's not always the case. So when you talk about like instances where you wouldn't have done certain things, are you taught what, what, um, what specifically comes to mind? Uh, I mean, just, I think the way that I, you know, I mean, I can go from, you know, the base level of things that you learn how to do or are supposed to learn how to do as a young adult. Like, you know, you have all your medical stuff taken care of when you're a part of these teams. You get to walk into a training room and have doctors and everyone on standby there. And now all of a sudden, you know, I get hurt or need something as an adult and I'm learning these things for the first time. Like, where do I need to go to like make sure I'm getting good PT if I have an injury right now doing something physical, getting all of those things set up. And I think, you know, in some cases, professional development, because, while you can do some things, and I was fortunate in my line of work to get to do behind the scenes content in Notre Dame and other things, I remember mm-hmm. talking to guys that would graduate and leave Notre Dame. And Notre Dame is a place that I think really, you know, and I just say the bias as an alum of that school, but in general is dedicated to the academic mission in a way that maybe not everyone is. And even there, I had teammates of mine who would graduate and say, man, you either walk out of here overqualified for the job based on the degree that you have or underqualified for the job that you want because you haven't had internship opportunity. You haven't Mm. had the ability to go and get that meaningful experience that other students would in that process. You get and we all learn how to spin our academic accomplishments and experience into things that might mimic what you would be helpful on a job application. But a lot of times there's really no substitute Some places are getting better at trying to bridge that gap now, but I I think there's those areas where you walk out after all that and it's, well, man, I just spent all my time putting all my eggs into this basket by and large because we all come with that dream. We're all at school on scholarship for that sport. And so it's hard to not give it that place in your life at that point. And then there are plenty of guys that walk out on the other side and just are are not equipped in the ways that I always think they should be for what comes next in life. And it that, yeah, that's a, that's a really fantastic point. It's so interesting that you mentioned that um, from some of your teammates that they feel like they're either overqualified or underqualified, but with regards to your trajectory, you know, I was really trying to like piece, uh, piece everything together in your timeline and everything. And of course, my first go-to source was Wikipedia, which we all know is is extremely credible. Um, <laughs> but I use I use Wikipedia to kind of get like the timeline of everyone's professional trajectory. But it seemed like you were always on the move, even after you graduate graduated from Notre Dame. Like you know, you you entered the pros, and albeit it, there was a lot of like 
coming and going. You know, it, yeah. it looked like, uh, you know, you signed with the Steelers and then a couple months later you got cut. I'm looking at your timeline now and yeah. then you signed with the Saints and then you got waived by the Saints a few months later. And then it looks like you joined Montreal, the Montreal Al- Alouettes it and was Arizona Rattlers. 2014 was a year. So I got cut in the elevator by the Saints before June. Um, NFL fans will know that there's a June 1st date that gives you some salary cap relief if you sign veteran players on the other side of that. So they signed a veteran. I got cut with a Subway sandwich in my hand in a lo- in a hotel elevator going up to watch Game of Thrones and then went to training camp with the Alouettes. I played in an experimental fall league, like basically a knockoff version of what you're seeing with the USFL and the XFL right now. It was the XFL or the, sorry, the FXFL. It's even hard to say in cumbersome. I lived in a Holiday Inn Express <laughs> on Staten Island for two months and played football games where the Brooklyn Cyclones play their baseball games on Coney Island. And wow. uh, then went to one more training camp with the Saints before I finally thought maybe I need a profession that wants me around a little more. Wow. And so that was about a three-year period yep. that you were coming and going and all that stuff. And I think there's this there's this notion that professional athletes make a lot of money. There's a lot of prestige. There's much more stability than they realize. But And then afterwards, you kind of seamlessly entered the broadcasting space. And of course, we all know your dad, Mike Golick Jr., who's been, who was the face of ESPN and Mike and Mike for roughly 20 years. And then here you went to ESPN. And I want to say, like, when I was looking at your Wikipedia page, I'm like, nowhere did it mention around 2016 that one of your first shows was with Prim Seripipat. Right. Hello. Where was the shout out? And I think it was football operation, operation football, was it? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, so it, uh, the, yeah. Dis- the disrespect there is palpable from Wikipedia. <laughs> and listen, we have the power because it is Wikipedia. So if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> go and add that to my bio. I don't know how to do that because I'm, you know, my father's son and at times less internet savvy than I'd like to be. But listeners to this, go and make sure that it adds proud former co host of Prim Rip Pat on Operation Football. <laughs> exactly. Well, you and I have, have, um, you know, there's been there's been quite the path of you went to ESPN 2016. We had the Operation Football. You came to our wedding. We had we had a very good time there. You ended up missing your Sunday show with Stu Gotts, right? And they had to go to your Twitter timeline and and figure out where you were. They were worried about you, but then they realized that you were at our wedding and you missed the show. So they were like, okay, he's fine. He's just sleeping and probably hung over. So that was fun. There was, there was no probably in that. Yeah. Arguably my (laughs) greatest ESPN moment and that show with, you know, Stu Gotts from the Dan Levitard show. That's one of the pillars of this industry, especially in, in sports talk and podcasting. Now Stu Gotts, who didn't need to be doing a Sunday show with a guy who was in his second year of doing all this (laughs) was kind enough to do it with me because we had struck up a friendship had to, and then immediately knew how to turn that into content. I would argue it was the best show we did on that Sunday morning, 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern, where we were hungover most of the time anyway. After that (laughs) wedding, I was very hungover because you guys threw an excellent bash to celebrate the union, and it was awesome. But I woke up with five voicemails from a weird number because it came through the ESPN studio. They were having people call in and leave me voicemails asking where I was from as a bit on the show. And all I looked at was a text from my mom. It was two texts that summed it up perfectly. (laughs) It was seven o'clock 
Mikey, where are you? And then 30 minutes later, all it said was, and this had to be after Stu Gatz pieced it together on air. All it said 30 minutes later from my mom was, oh, no. (laughs) That was it. Your mom sent you that text? That's hilarious. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. That's it. Just like, Mikey, where are you? Oh, no. (laughs) She She figured out where I was and she knew the answer wasn't good. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, you're you're in an interesting juncture. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the conversation very kind of like left left hook here, but you're at a period where you're still living in Connecticut right now, right? Yep. Okay. And here you are embarking on this new chapter. It's gonna be a new city, new job, new podcast, new show with your teammate Brandon Newman, which is so exciting. Gojo with Michael Lick Jr. Um it's just like there's just so much new stuff going on. And I think what's what I was thinking about your reflecting on your just general personal professional athletic trajectory. I think what's so unique about your story is that your family is so deeply intertwined in your personal journey, whether it has to do with football or Notre Dame or ESPN. So have you given yourself any time to process the fact that you're leaving Connecticut, leaving ESPN, just embarking on this brand new chapter? Yeah. So the ESPN part, I've been able to process a fair amount. I mean, when I I finished at ESPN in February of 2022, and it was the week of the Super Bowl. And then from there on, I didn't work again until the first week of May. So I had almost 11, 12 weeks where I was on the shelf and had the time to kind of pull back. And I had talked to so many of our former colleagues, people that had left mm-hmm. ESPN before and was just kind of, you know, picking some of the brains of, of people that I, I was in contact with. And everyone kind of universally said the same thing, which is enjoy the downtime. Now, I was fortunate to know I was going to be doing the podcast with DraftKings. I knew where the job was going to be. There were just things that had to happen behind the scene for it to go through. And everyone to a man, to a woman said, enjoy this downtime now, make sure you stop, force yourself to kind of be present and be still for a little bit. And so I I did get to process that, you know, I I got notes from you and so many of my other, you know, current and former coworkers and people that I had called teammates. And it was incredibly humbling to see that because you you don't know going through the day to day of our job, you you think you're doing your best to be a good teammate, to, to love the people that you're working with, to try and you know, put your best foot forward and earn respect because as athletes, I think we're all wired, at least, you know, especially for me at the beginning coming to ESPN, it was very much that mentality of being a freshman where, while this is ironic because it's a job that involves talking, it was be seen, not heard. Like, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to do that, but it's for the rest of the time. I'm not here to try and overstep my bounds. I'm here to show through my work that while the nepotism tag was understandable because I did get a leg up in getting into the building because of dad, I wanted to show people through the work that I was committed to being there because I loved this. I wanted to do this since I was in high school. I was someone who was going to show that commitment to my job rather than tell people about it. And so to see on the other end that that it at least resonated to some extent with the people that I had been around work-wise was definitely humbling and you know a a good reminder that all right like there were a few things you did right that you can take with to the next spot about how you approach this how you approach the people side of the business and and who you're working with and and kind of what their needs are so 
it mm-hmm. was that was kind of my reflection of the time at ESPN. Like I was so grateful uh, for all the opportunity they had given me. It was six and a half years with a lot of life packed into it. I had mm-hmm. gotten to bump draft off my dad's, you know, 20 plus years at ESPN. So I was so familiar with the place. It kind of was like when I went to Notre Dame to play football. I had been growing up around that my whole life. So I knew a lot about it and then got to have my own experience firsthand. And so at ESPN, I knew a lot about it. I knew a lot of the people. My bosses were people that had been producers on Mike and Mike. I had known them since I was 11. Justin Craig, who was the programming director in radio, I had known since I was 12 years old. And so I knew all of that, but I didn't have my relationship with work or with them. I had my dad's relationship and my Mm. relationship through him. And so it was kind of just reflecting on how I I got to that point personally and professionally during my time at ESPN through the sheer volume of reps, through the sheer number of opportunities that I was fortunate enough to be a part of, to forge my own relationship with so many people in this industry, to forge my own relationship with listeners and to just kind of figure out what being me on air and as a person really was as now an adult away from sports in the ways that I had had before and covering them and being someone, you know, approaching, you know, at that time for me, like 28, 29, 30, when I really started to, you know, relax my shoulders a little bit and say, all right, we can do this. We, we've, you know, there's, there's ways and opportunities in here for you to be yourself and your own unique version of that. And so, you know, that's the really long winded way of saying that I, I definitely got to reflect back a little bit and was thankful for how much I learned how to be myself over the course of six and a half years under the ESPN umbrella. Yeah, there's two parts that I kind of want to tackle in terms of like you finding your own voice and doing that on air. That's a really, that's a really hard thing, as we all know, as talent to like, get to that point where you feel much more free and you can really be your authentic self. I feel like that's hard to do if you really off off air don't know who you are. So it's like an evolving process. But I think, you know, talking about your departure from ESPN, do you think you would have still left if your dad was still there? Do you, or do you think that would have mattered? Um, I think it would have definitely, I, I mean, It's hard to separate that out because he had been such a big part of my life there. I mean, we got to do a show together for three, three and a half years in that range. And it was awesome. Like we both said separately, professionally, there will never be a thing that we get to do that's that cool. Like it just such a unique opportunity. We see plenty of families that end up in sports media, but very rarely are they in roles where you can come together and actually, you know, we called college football games together for, you know, a couple instances, got to do the radio show. And so that part of it was just so unique. And obviously there were some things about dad's departure that I did not sit well with me and my family. I mean, that's, you know, been no state secret. And, you know, uh, I, I think that certainly probably would play a role if dad was still there. But at the same time, it was also just looking at my life and a lot of the decision to leave was, about sort of like a nexus of opportunities. And we've seen sports gambling is a space with a ton of growth potential. The podcast space is one that is certainly continuing to grow. And I think becoming one of the more consistent listener experiences, it's intimate in different ways. It was a different kind of challenge. And for me personally, it offered, you know, 
you know, what I still believe can be a little bit more work life flexibility and the balance Mm -hmm. there, because I am given more space and more agency and how exactly we go about building this. And there was part of me that looked around at the end of my time at ESPN and loved what I was doing work wise, loved the people I was doing it with, but just saw, you know, the amount of time I was spending with it, how I kept, you know, taking on more and more of that because I did enjoy it, but also that I was 32 and single in central Connecticut and wondering, all right, am I serving the other areas of my life as well mm-hmm. as I need to be right now? Or if those are things that I value and that matter to me, do I need to do something to create more space for me to make sure that I'm fulfilling that part of my life and exploring and growing that part of my life the way that I've been pouring into the work part of my life. And that's a luxury that comes from privilege of, you know, having the financial security to do that, of, you know, coming into an opportunity like this. But that was absolutely a big part of the process. So, yeah, dad, you know, dad still being at ESPN definitely would have made it enticing because, you know, my family would have still been out here. My parents don't live in Connecticut anymore. My brother and sister don't live in the state. I'm the only one out here from that family. And while it's fine because planes exist and we can get on them again, it's just a very different dynamic once that happens. And again, while I had, you know, I felt by the end, my own identity in the building, my own relationships in the building, there was always a certain part of that place that was going to have bits of my dad there because he had been so much a part of building the department, especially that I worked in. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like uh, it seems like this this life event seemed to be the the door that gave you an opportunity or like precipitate or prompt this next move in your life. It's almost like with the pandemic, I feel like it it forced people to take steps that they were going to take ten years from now, but it just kind of uh, sped things up a little bit. Um, and it sounds like that was kind of the case for you where your dad leaving, while that may or may not have been, you know, an explicit reason for your departure, but it certainly opened the gateway to like looking at other parts of your life and saying, this is good. I need to start hitting up these other areas now at 32 years years old. And now I have to look for my next chapter and an opportunity that's that's going to be able to like fill all these other spaces for me. Yeah. Well, and I think too, there's something to be said for seeing it done by someone close to you. Cause it's also daunting. Like I'm, and you could probably speak to this and, and I've talked to sure. a lot of people leaving the ESPN <clears throat> umbrella is a daunting thing. There is safety in those four letters. It is a brand that people trust. And when you're under that umbrella, it can help grow your profile. It can give you all this attention. There are a ton of good things about it and the opportunities that come from a place that also owns the rights to so many sports and so that was always something I was like, there's no way I'm ready for that. Like, I'm not someone that enough people care about separate from ESPN to go and do all of that. And, you know, I, I still like don't believe that's the case. You know, I believe I can go and work hard and try and create. And I think that was yet another thing where for me growing up, I always said I wanted to be my mom and dad. They were my heroes. I wanted to do the things that made them them. And I got to watch my dad do all the things that I wanted to do. And I just said, okay, those are things that helped make him who he was as a man, who my parents were as Mm -hmm. people. And so following that and seeing that, I got to see, all right, these things are possible because he did them. That's 
in a weird way, like, listen, as a, you know, as a cis white male, like the world is open to me. Like there are an infinite number of possibilities for people that look like, and, you know, are the gender that I am, but in, it, it did help me understand why representation is so important for groups of people, because for me, seeing an actual copy of myself do all these things made it feel like it was possible, made it feel like it could be expected that I could mm. accomplish all of these things. And so dad leaving after 20 plus years at the same space and going and finding ways to, you know, not reinvent himself, but just figure out the next phase of his career in the way that he did so well and made me so proud watching it was also one of those reminders of like, all right, it's possible. You've watched plenty of your friends leave and have success and be really happy doing this. And now you just watched your dad who you got to see that day-to-day process up close in a way that I didn't get to see with my friends, with you, with other people that had Mm -hmm. left the company. And so maybe it was just another instance of seeing, all right, it's possible. I watched the way that he went through that day-to-day and it doesn't have to be as scary or daunting as I make it in my head. Yeah. I I mean, since your arrival in 2016, you've seen a lot of people go. Mm -hmm. I think uh, shortly after our wedding in April of 2017, March 2017, and then I got laid off along with, you know, it was probably one of the biggest layoffs in terms of talent and and big faces. We saw like Ron Jaworski and Ed Werder, of course, a couple of the names are, are back. I remember actually running into Jerome Bettis, uh, the bus at an Atlanta airport shortly after I got laid off. And I remember seeing him and I was like, I'm like so embarrassed to go say hi because I had just been laid off. And I just felt like it was just this weird place. And then, but we went and said hi, but little did I know that he had gotten laid off too. Wow. And I'm like, well, if, if, if the bus gets laid off, then I should be okay with being laid off. Not that I'm comparing myself to him, but you know, um, it's just a, it's an interesting dynamic. You're right of, of having to leave ESPN. And, um, if you don't mind, I do want to play a little clip. Been the interesting part watching for all of us as I know my mom's been a wreck throughout all wreck. this, seeing the nice notes that everyone has sent and all that. And it's appreciated, but we joked and said it felt like a funeral and all this. And I realized like for us, it's a little different and it's a little happier because even after we turn off the mics, you still get to be our dad. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the part that through all of it, oof, I am my mom's son. <laughs> that's the part that through all of it. And when we grew up, you know, it was, it was such a big thing. And Mike and Mike became this big phenomenon. And there was so much that came along with that. And it, you always made sure that it was about us and you always made sure that you were around for the stuff that we did. And we felt that and we saw it and it meant so, so much to grow up feeling like that you could do anything because you two made that possible because we got to watch the way that you guys woke up every day and loved each other and loved us and supported all of our dreams through that. It's the reason Jake is a, is a great husband right now. It's a reason Sydney's going to be a great wife and they're going to be great parents. And you're going to be a great husband too. <laughs> <laughs> and come hell or high water with my mom, that is going to be the case too. But you always put that at the forefront. You stopped calling college football games when we got to high school because you wanted to be around and support us. And then to get to do this with you for the last three years is 
it'll be the highlight of my professional life, my personal life. I love you so much to get to do the thing I always wanted to do with the person I always wanted to be is such an insanely surreal thing. I, I will never forget it. So well, thanks, I Dad. appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank all of you. Um, <laughs> nobody going to jump in here and help, huh? About this show has been we, we moved here from, from Arizona because it was our baby. <laughs> yeah. We never aspired to do anything more than the radio show. It was the pinnacle for us. It's meant everything to us. It's been a part of our family, and that's why this means so much to us. <clears throat> this is why we did it, and this is why I did it for right here and what Mike just said. Um, all the guests and all the people we mentioned, everybody was so important, but there's nobody as important than who is sitting right here on the set with you right now. Thank you all. What comes to mind when you watch that clip? Uh, the audacity that I didn't think I was going to cry when I was kind of getting my thoughts <laughs> together before that. Like I, I said it in there. I, I'm sure people will see in the video. My mom was holding a towel, not a tissue, <laughs> not a handkerchief, a towel, because she knew she was going to sob because she was self-aware enough. And I thought, Oh, I am a radio professional now. I will be able to compose myself here. And it's the Mike Tyson line. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And you guys heard the audible version of me getting punched in the face by the emotion of that moment. Yeah, I think that was just a good example. And you should be emotional. Oh, yeah. Because in just that little bit, I mean, for heaven's sakes, I was... I watched that the other day. And even just listening it again, I shed a tear just because... You can feel the emotion and the passion and the love and in in different breaths between you and your father and your mom. Again, as I said earlier in the interview, your path is so unique because rare, very rarely do our aspirations or hobbies or interests or, or uh, careers, do they so deeply become so intertwined and blended with our family? But with your situation... You, it, it really did, like moving to Connecticut and, and all those things. So yeah. I, I, I just feel like it, it would be – it's impossible to compartmentalize. It's impossible for it to not be personal because it has been a part of your family. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, and, and I think that was always the goal, and that was how I learned this industry through my dad. Like everyone, I think, has a choice in all this, and a lot of people do it differently and in different ways – but for my dad and for Greeny when that show started, it was, this is going to be a family show. We're out in the mornings. We're in people's cars and living rooms. We're going to give up this part of our lives, which practically meant if you guys do something funny, we're going to talk about it. And so <laughs> we knew we knew that. But it also meant, you know, they were going to talk about our athletic achievements. And we had when people would approach my dad in public, we had to kind of very early on get used to people would always ask. Oh, Sydney, you know, my sister, how's swimming going or how is football going? And it's a little jarring at first to realize that, but it prepared me for what this job can be and, you know, what radio podcasting now, like they're intimate mediums. You sit with people for a long time. I mentioned like you heard from people over the years and I remember when those notes were coming in for dad. There, I mean, the amount of people who used to send pictures to Dad and Greeny from the delivery room, they had Mike and Mike on while their kid was being born, or had listened to it, you know, when they had lost a loved one, or listened to it in some situation that got them through something or gave them joy in some area, and you just saw how much those relationships meant, and it was in large part because they gave so much of themselves 
in that show. And again, not everyone has to do that. There are plenty of really successful people in this industry who don't make any mention of their family life and keep that part separate and believe that that's Mm -hmm. supposed to be that way. But, you know, that was just not how I was brought up. In, in this, in, you know, both life and in this industry. And so, yeah, it led to that moment where we could sit on set there and people were familiar enough with us through my dad for that to mean something in that moment. And, you know, I think everyone, you know, we got a lot of notes that day after that uh, moment from other people who had opportunities to work with their parent or work with their child mm-hmm. in whatever their job was. And, I think, you know, uh, among many things, because we can always talk about what the goal is when you're on air and radio or on air and TV, like w- what we're actually there to do. But I-, I think part of it is always to, you know, give of ourselves so that people can, you know, find the bits of themselves in that and that moment where it's all right, hey, there's there's something that we just put on screen there and something of our lives that we put out there that a lot of other people met with kindness because it was familiar to them because they had had things that they had wanted to say to their parent, to their child. And, you know, maybe yeah. it gave them that opportunity to talk, which was, you know, pretty cool to share that with everyone, but also just for me selfishly in that moment and for my family, just a cool opportunity. Like you said, at the beginning of this podcast, we don't always get to talk like that in normal life. Like it would be a little jarring if I just bust out and said that to my dad sitting around watching TV in the family room. And it's not to say you can't have those moments, but it just gave me kind of the the opportunity to sit, reflect on what it all had meant, what that lifetime of things, because I meant everything I said, like all those things were true. And it did have such an impact on our family as we were going through figuring out how to kind of exist in a little more public space and to get to sit compartmentalize those thoughts and then get to actually say them to dad and, you know, give him his flowers in that moment was, you know, a a really unique experience. And one I definitely treasure for sure. I feel like so many people watch that clip and we're so either envious, but also just like in awe of just, wow, what a great family. Like I wish our family was like that, or I wish I could have that relationship with my, you know, my brother or sister, mom or dad, you know? And I think that's, um, that's one thing that came to mind when, when watching that. And which which I would also like to remind people, we fight and we cuss each other out a bunch of (laughs) like, it's, it's one of those things you, and and you take the good moments like that when they come certainly, but like, that's also like people learned over the years. We're not perfect. We're not even close to that. There is, you know, we're, we're human like everybody else, but at the end of the day, it's grounded in that love, which I think is definitely yeah. important. Yeah, you could definitely see that. I think my next question for you is, you know, and I've talked about this with other athletes whose parents were also prestigious big-time athletes, and it could be very – you could feel so blessed in, in many ways because you have like this path and this blueprint that's kind of laid out for you. But in other moments, it can also be very difficult because in many ways, the offspring might feel as though they're in the shadow of their parents or there's this level of expectation. So I'm just curious, like now, I feel like your answer might've been different from 10 years ago, but now sitting here at 32 years old, what has that experience been like of not only being so melded and similar with your dad, but just the fact that you guys have the same name as well. You know, <laughs> you know, there's so many things from football 
to Notre Dame, to the NFL, to ESPN, to media personality? Like, what has that been like for you and being alongside and with, but also trying to create your own identity separate from your dad? Yeah, I think that's one that took me a lot longer to kind of grapple with in any sort of meaningful way. Like when I was a kid and I was playing football, I got, you know, the nepotism stuff. Then I got people saying that the only reason you're going to Notre Dame because you were a legacy. I, I, you know, I I got used to that. That's why when I got to ESPN, I was like, oh, this sounds familiar. I kind of know how to deal with Hmm. this already because I've heard that from people. But at the time, you know, I was a young, confident, you know, 17 and 18 year old getting ready to do all that and had my dreams in front of me, was playing the sport that I wanted to at the place that I always dreamed of playing it. And then, you know, this once you get to a collegiate athletic environment, you're so focused on the day to day and you're so focused on, all right, what am I trying to accomplish long term? What am I trying to you know, accomplish here in the day to get my task done with work, with workouts, with school, with practice. And so I don't think I noticed it as much then. And, you know, I I got fortunate to, I was a late bloomer. I didn't play as much as I wanted to in my career. I ended up with 17 starts that were backloaded my uh, fourth and fifth year, senior year. And, you know, I I got lucky because then I was around for that 12 and 0 season. We got to play in a national championship and that was a big confidence booster of, all right, like I had finally gotten to do the thing. I had done it at a level that got me to a place that was something different. And, you know, something my dad pointed out, he's like, I, he's like, I didn't get to play in a national championship, all that. And so I, I think that certainly helped, but then it creeps back in when all of a sudden my foray into professional football was the Wikipedia page we mentioned before, which was a (laughs) sip of coffee and a complicated one at that. And so then once I did that and got into the media thing is where I started to really have to say, okay, we've been charging through this for so long. Now I'm starting to feel some of the, well, I feel like I'm only in this building because of dad. And I feel like everyone else feels that and is staring at me with that in mind. And I wouldn't blame them. If they were, I don't feel like I accomplished enough athletically to be able to speak on these things about these people playing the game at a level that I couldn't touch alongside people like my dad who had resumes that were far exceeding what I had at that time and what I had done as an athlete. And so all those insecurities started to creep in at the beginning. And that was what made it really hard to be me on air and even figure out what that was. It wasn't until I just, through sheer volume of reps, spent enough time with that, got comfortable enough, started to realize that though my experience wasn't his experience and my experience wasn't Dan Orlovsky's experience or Jeff Saturday's experience or all these people that I looked at alongside dad who, to me, were doing the job the way that I wanted to do it or at a place in their career that I wanted to be – I started to realize if I'm just sitting here trying to be them, I'm always going to come up short. But, mm. and I, I remember it, it was, I was talking with Bamani Jones about this one time. Uh, and cause like, again, it really took me a long time to truly settle down, be comfortable, get to a point where I could really start to, you know, be the fullest version of myself on air. And I remember talking to Bamani about it and he's like, he's like, listen, you're a smart guy and you've had unique experiences that you can draw on in these spots. He kind of was the one that 
reminded me, hey, sometimes mm. even though your athletic experience wasn't a decade-long pro experience, you can go back to that stuff you experienced in the locker room yeah. and bring people there. And I mean, God, it's the first advice my dad gave me is take them where they can't go, the listener. Take them inside mm. the locker rooms that you've been in. And so once I realized that just because my experience didn't look the same as those people, it was still valuable. There were still parts of it that I could draw from, and I got com more comfortable doing that. I think that was when I started to kind of say, you know, all right, like I was always proud to be my dad's son. It was always way, 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 way more good than it was people talk, you know, people smack, you know, saying a negative thing or feeling like there was a negative outcome from it. Like, I, I don't want that to be the takeaway because I still maintain it is, you know, it's done so much good for me having that same name and being associated in the way I was and getting to follow and have that roadmap before me. But you know, I, I think I reckoned with it more when I got to ESPN just because the proximity was even closer. And so being next to him, I did have to also figure out, all right, how am I different? You know, what are those mm -hmm. ways? And when we were talking with each other on the show, a lot more of those started to shine through. A lot more of the things that we disagreed on or differed on started to shine through. And I said, oh, OK, like there are a bunch of these things that are just unique to me. Why don't I keep exploring them? Why don't I keep seeing how they look in all these other platforms around ESPN, digital, college football, all these different areas. And I think having to kind of put myself in each of those spots made me focus more on coming back to, all right, what's unique that you bring to the table that you can offer no matter the setting? And mm -hmm. that, all of that kind of led to that point where it was, all right, I had been able to walk this path that dad had blazed before me. And now I'm comfortable enough to veer off the road and explore some other mm. things because I know a little bit more about what makes me tick. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I, and I, there's so much that I want to dive into. And I just want to say that you, you don't by any means come off negative, but, and there's no, but you don't come off negative in any way. I wanted to shed light on that because, and this is less, uh, this is one part of not only showing the humanistic side of sport, but the humanistic side of our industry, because our industry can get, you have to have thick skin to deal with the stuff that we do. No one will ever understand like the, the messages the stuff, the hate, especially with social media. Now everyone's got social media courage. It's so easy to throw a comment when people are sitting anonymously behind a computer screen. People just have no idea. And I wanted to shed light on that because I could even hear it come out in like some of the, some, even in just the four, you know, the 40 minutes that we've been talking, there's just like this tone of like having to qualify and justify what your situation is. And like, for me, you know, being a PhD student in counseling psychology at, at Fordham, like one thing that we talk about is like really when we're working with clients or, or whether or not we're doing like some sort of activism is recognizing privilege and the privilege that we that we come from. And so that's like a word that I've been really trying to learn more about, but you've done it multiple times. I don't know if people were able to pick up on it, but you really like pointed it out multiple times, you know, about like being a cisgender, like white male and, you know, recognizing like who your father is and your family and having those doors open and all that stuff. But what that tells me is, is that unfortunately 
people have reminded you time and time again of your privilege. And so my empathy goes towards you about like just the type of stuff that you've had to deal with of like, I, I don't know if you've ever felt like, isn't what I'm doing just enough? Like it doesn't have to be because of my dad or my family or somebody else. Yeah. And I, I think every once in a while you notice that and that stuff gets to you. I, I've always, you know, been able to kind of look and see just comparatively. And listen, everyone's problems are relative. They're all our own. We're allowed to feel bad when bad stuff happens to us. But God, like looking in your mentions, looking in Mina Kimes mentions and seeing the way women get treated in our industry, seeing the way athletes get treated. Like, <laughs> I think that experience has certainly made me more cognizant and been a great reminder that when we're covering players, these are human beings and we get separated behind the microphone every once in a while. And sometimes we say things that are a bit out of pocket because there's some distance between us and the subject. And that's when I really have to zoom back in and go, man, listen, you had buddies that got death threats on the team too. Like I had friends of mine in college that were getting death threats for plays that they messed up in a football game. So it's, it's a good reminder to that extent. But I think the other part of it is I, I always thought I'd just beat people to the punch. Like I, I, I knew what I was and I knew how I got here. And I wasn't ashamed of that. Like I knew I wasn't just doing this because it's like, all right, well, you know, dad did it. And I know I can do this and I know I can get a foot in the door. Like I wanted to do this. And I, I always made sure like, you know, I, I kind of asked myself that question going in. I was like, if this is something you care enough about to want to do and spend the time with, then you're going to be able to weather whatever people say, because you're going to admit it up front. And, and, and I do admit that up front. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I got here all of my own will and hard work. Like, this isn't a bootstrap thing. I had a lot of help to get here. And then I had to be willing to do the work once I got there. And I think to your point about sharing all that, I, I think it's that level of honesty is good because in sports and in life, we lionize stories where it feels like people did everything by themselves. And we love these tall tales and we love building people up into myths. And it's hardly ever the case. Like it, it, it's yeah. we're so selective with when we decide that an athlete accomplished everything by themselves or we run through the laundry list of people that they always thank at awards who helped get them to that moment. Like mm -hmm. it, it is much more often the village. It is unique opportunities that come up. It's it's who you know in this industry so often. And that just happened to be a relative for me. And so uh, again, I think it always came back to because I knew this was a job that I wanted to do, because I knew the reasons why I wanted to do it. And I trusted the work that I was going to do. Once I got wherever I was, I was very comfortable admitting all of that because it was a part of how I got there. And I, you know, anytime I talk to a young broadcaster or someone who reaches out and asks questions about this, the first thing I always say is my experience probably is not going to be your experience. Like how mm. I got to that place that I was is not really a road that everybody can travel because of how I got my foot in the door. I can tell you what the work looks like when you get there. I can give you and, and you know put you in contact with people who had an experience that could be closer to what you're getting ready to deal with. But I always, and this is a thing I stole, you know, or, or an idea that I heard Katie Nolan talk about when we were working together. I want to talk about what I know. And I don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, I don't want to overstretch that because that's an easy way to find myself in a position where all of a sudden I'm on uncertain ground. I want to talk about what I know. And at this point, I'm very comfortable with all right, these are the things I know. These are the things that I would like to learn more about. And I'm going to be honest about them when I talk to people about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that type of honesty with ourselves about 
what we know and what we don't know can be quite the evolving process. <laughs> and if there's one thing that I do know about you is that you are you are an unbelievable hard worker and you're also just like naturally so good at what you do. Like with regards to the hard work, like you, you majored in film and television and theater, right? At Notre Dame, you got a, a nice, beautiful 3.4 GPA. And so, and then when you started ESPN, when we start, when we worked on Operation Football in 2016, like you had just started and I'm like, God dang it. This guy is so good. And how old is he? He's like 26 years old. I was just like the level of confidence and honesty. And he feels so comfortable in his skin. So it's so interesting to hear that you had all these other insecurities and it took you, understandably, it takes most everybody, maybe even five, 10 years to get comfortable, especially when you're on as talent. But it's so interesting to hear that all these insecurities would emerge, especially within the first several years, where when I looked at you and sat right next to you, I was like, God dang it, this guy is so good and so <laughs> confident and so himself. I'm like, how do I get to that point? But how did you how did you manage, how did your insecurities manifest themselves in your work and also your personal life? I'm asking a double barrel question here. And how did they manifest? And then how did you work through them? Um, I think they just manifest in more because like you said, I tried not to let it leak on air too much, but I didn't think I was as good on air as I eventually got, which, you know, none of us should sh start at the place that we end up. What's the fun in that? You don't learn anything. I didn't, you know, there was plenty I didn't know, but I, I did know to your point, like that was the one thing I was aware of was I thought I was naturally better at this than I ever was at football. Football was a grind. Hmm. Like I was physically at a place where, you know, Central Connecticut high school football, I could, you know, walk out and kick ass. But I got to college and got reminded very quickly that I was not bigger, faster and stronger than so many of my peers. And so I was the guy that had to, you know, work to keep weight on that had to be a technician, because that was how I was going to, you know, go and accomplish what I needed to do. And so football to me was something I was, I think, markedly less talented at then I was naturally at this because I had a big personality because I had grown up around this and seen it from my dad firsthand for so long. Again, I got to see a genetic, you know, almost copy of me doing and saying and going through all of these things. I didn't grow up watching my dad play football. I grew up watching my dad hmm. be a sports broadcaster. And so I had all that baked in. I had the benefit of his experience when I walked in and I had a, you know, a, a personality that I think is naturally kind of outgoing. So that was, you know, all kind of covered up the fact that behind the scenes, and I think this was really one of the things is part of the insecurity was you don't get a ton of feedback. No. Like, that's, that's the part of this that I always tell people too is hunt feedback aggressively because it's not like sports where we get done with practice and we go watch the tape and there is a right way and a wrong way to do things. And we go through and we have very frank conversations about what right and wrong looks like. Because if we don't, especially in football, people get hurt. If I'm three inches mm -hmm. short on a block, my buddy, the running back, gets cracked and might end his season, might end his career, or might just sting really bad tomorrow. So we have those honest conversations that are very blunt, that can sometimes you know turn into confrontation, because that's what that requires. It's obviously less dire here. And you have people that you know, it's like a social contract, right? Where you agree, hey, we can give each other honest feedback and we're not going to take that personally. We're going yeah. to because we want to do that. 
not everybody's got that contract in this industry. Like not everyone's got that comfort level in dealing in that way. And so you get a lot of people that just, you know, will pat you on the back. will say, good job. Want to make sure that you feel like you're doing well. And that was really, really hard for me at the beginning because I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. I felt like I wasn't what I saw in all of these other people that I admired and wanted to emulate. And I didn't really know how to get there. And at the beginning, I was dumb and I was too nervous to ask, which was, you know, a problem I had in school in a lot of instances where none of us want to be the one to raise our hand and ask the quote unquote dumb question. And so I, I, I slowly, I think, got better at that and asking more people about their process and was fortunate to find people who would lend me their ears or eyes and mm-hmm. give me feedback on stuff. Obviously, dad was at the front of the line on that because I could always go to him and I knew him and my mom were, you know, listening. My mom has consumed more sports talk radio and more of what I've done <sighs> than any person on earth. But I, I knew I had those people, but it was just finding enough of that to where along with all the reps, which is the thing everyone tells you you need in this job. I also, I think in getting some of that feedback kind of helped ground me a little more and kind of helped, like I mentioned, the feedback I got from Bomani, the feedback that Mm -hmm. I got from other coworkers of ours kind of helped me calm down some of the insecurity. And that helped me prep better for the different shows that I was Mm -hmm. on. It helped me come to meetings and be more involved in the process because I felt like I had a better handle on what I could give back. So I think the feedback, honestly, and that massive difference from the feedback we got as athletes versus the feedback we then got as broadcasters was really a big point in that and a big turning point for me. Ooh, we don't have enough time on this show to talk about the feedback or lack of feedback that we get as talent. I don't even know where to begin. I feel like this is like one of those like red flags where it's like, how honest should I be at this point? But yep. you know what? The cool thing is... Is that it's, it's my show, our show. So I'm going to be honest. Yeah. I think the feedback is a really big issue, especially in, in our position as voices and talent, because you're right that you put it so eloquently, like not everybody is engaged in that social contract. And even if they are engaged, that doesn't necessarily mean people are good or equipped to offering feedback. I can't tell you how many times people said, Prim, you need to be more confident. Prim, you need to be more yourself. Prim, you need to show more personality. Well, now that I'm like much more knowledgeable at all that stuff, like what does confidence look like to you? Are you making assumptions about that my voice or my tone or my stature or even my gender or race or what I'm wearing is influencing your thought on how I come off as confident? Or what does personality show? Does that mean I'm louder in pitch or I'm higher in pitch? Or does that mean I am more direct, succinct, brief? Like the vagueness in terms of our feedback is like, nuts and it sends us in circles it's really tough and i I think for me as i went because again i was fortunate to you know find some i mentioned justin craig's name before ryan yarrow who worked in college football was really giving of his time with me and both of those guys had done it for so long as producers the one thing they did that kind of helped me to that end because I, I, as much as people say, be yourself, like there was no how in that, like they didn't give you the how in all of that. And I still don't think a lot of people necessarily did, but I think the thing that helped me the most, and I'd be curious about how, how you felt about this is I always felt like, and this may be especially for like radio long form areas that are a little more amorphous. I needed someone to show me where the lines were. What does the structure Mm. have to look like around this so that I can color inside the lines? I know I keep bringing them up, but 
when I was starting to do um, morning radio, I was four to six. I started off with Robin Lundberg as a co-host. He was unfortunately part of that first round of layoffs that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, they they weren't going to put another co-host in that time slot. So I had to figure out how to host solo radio. And so I would listen to a lot of Bamani in the afternoons and other guys that had done it solo. And I saw the way him, the way the guys at the Levitard show would, you know, structure where they put ads in the right spot have like mm-hmm. a defined open and close all these things that like I just needed to put up posts around what I was doing mm-hmm. so that I could get to the part in the middle and then relax not have to focus so much on all right let me make sure we get everyone paid up with this ad read let me make sure that I tease whatever we got to do like get that all out of the way and then unclench my jaw mm-hmm. and get to try and just have a conversation a little bit more but that was your right kind of the closest I got to you know, anyone aiding me in being myself in that regard, because that's kind of an ambiguous bit of feedback. Yeah, it's, you know, I think this conversation is, uh, what I'm about to say is directed to people who are in a position where they offer feedback. And I think there is a skill when it comes to it. And when we tell people, just be yourself, Well, then that implies like specificity is really important. And when you say, just be yourself, that means that the person who is trying to be themselves is not good enough. And so what does that mean in terms of whatever they're presenting right now that you try to tell them to be themselves and you're implying passively that that's not enough? So, and then on the other, the psychological side of it is like, well, if I am myself, that's the risk that we take because it, then if we're ourselves on air publicly and it's not received well, well, then that's like the worst rejected in the world that you can experience. It, it is. But at the same time, because like as a mantra, I still think there is value in that. It was the first thing my dad ever told me. And again, mm-hmm. I got to see how he did it. So I had an example that maybe, you know, added to that advice in a way that made it more full. But what you just described was the exact feeling I had somewhere around my fourth year when I was at ESPN. Because I had people all the time that would chirp me and say, you know, as soon as your dad's gone, they're going to fire you. And like, I signed, I think I signed three contracts there. I was like, dude, if they wanted me gone, they'd have had me gone a while ago. Like, we're past all that. But you're saying people people inside the company or people outside would say that? Yeah, I guess I should be more specific. These are like trolls. These are people outside. This is not anyone inside the building. No, there was... There was a lot of love. There was a lot of very, you know, supportive people inside the building. Okay. I'm saying outside the building, these are people on Twitter, the people that are going to try and say negative things that sometimes would get into your head. And mm-hmm. I had enough of those people that would come up with that. And my thing always was, and what I settled on after a while was I would rather go down swinging being myself yeah. than trying to mimic someone else and having that fail. Because my mm-hmm. God, the what ifs that plague you there, like, you know, I I can figure out, you know, I, 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 I would hope because I can't say this for sure because I haven't done it, but I would hope that I've got the resilience to where if I, you know, if someone did let me go or if I was fired tomorrow, I'd be able to piece it together and figure out something to do and be that resourceful. I would hope that for myself. But if I'm going to get there, God, I wouldn't want to be sitting there with the what if of, well, what if I had just done what I thought was the right thing to do in that spot? Mm -hmm. That was informed by the things that I had learned from other people that was informed by knowing what best practices were, but then also filtering that through the lens of, well, this is my experience with that directly. It's the same way that a, a football coach can teach you technique and tell you exactly how to do something the right way. And then you get out of the field and it's, 
well, yeah, coach, I know you want my hand like this, but that guy's 350 pounds and running at me full speed. I can't put my hands like that on him at my size with my physical tools and have that work. I've got to do something a little bit differently. And so that, you know, I, I, I don't bring it back to sports for overwrought metaphors to, you know, remind people that I am a sporting man, but it really is like these things are the yeah. stuff that I held on to from sports that are like reminders that I, I, you know, have the light go on, you know, almost daily at times of, oh man, yeah, this was the thing I learned here that absolutely applies right now. And I think that that was one of those things where once I figured out through trial and error, all right, what do I look like on air? I was like, I'd rather be that guy and lose than try and Mm -hmm. be somebody else and hang on for a little bit longer. Wow, that's so fascinating. So it really sounds like when you were drawing that comparison back to the head coach telling you something about technique-wise that doesn't always work in game time situations that you were applying this in this professional entity like aspect or chapter of your life, which tells me that maybe you were kind of getting some feedback that was like, okay, that doesn't really fly. And that's what we have to do. We have to like really filter through this feedback. And that's a really hard thing. It's like, okay, this person gave me this feedback. That person is a position of power, but I have to put that inside because that doesn't really work. And then this is good. So I guess my next question is who who are you? Like who, what have you come to find out about yourself over the past several years after working through all these insecurities? Like who are you as you embarked on on this new chapter, new city, new show, new company now, you know, start in your thirties, who is Mikey? Yeah. Um, well I, I have, I found out that uncle Mikey is a title that fits really well. Like I've gotten to do, I, I, I say, you know, I joke that it's been great practice, but it's been super fulfilling. Like a lot of my friends and former teammates got married when we were pretty young. And so a lot of them have, you know, multiple kids at this point, kids that are five and six years old and have little personalities and know me and are excited to see me when I go and see them. And that part's been really cool watching, you know, so getting to be that version of me that gets to have a relationship with the kids of people I've known forever. That's going to get to do that with a blood relative. Now when my brother and his wife have a kid and my sister just got married. So there's the part of me now that as my family has spread out and grown, that we're not mm-hmm. all in the same place. Like I'm making extra sure to be mindful of that. I want to be the best, you know, son, brother, uncle that I can be in all these instances, first and foremost, because I mean, hell, if the last two years have taught us nothing else is at the end of the day, that's mm-hmm. all you've really got. And I'm fortunate to have it. So I, I think I start with that. And then, uh, you know, from the, the job side of it with this, like, and with the approach of the podcast, like I, I, I looked a lot more at who did I like listening to and what did they do well. And Mm -hmm. the thing I always came back to was like the sense of community. I thought that was the cool opportunity about the podcast space. And I've already seen some of the fruits of that start to bear in the way you can connect with people because of how much time you're spending with them because of how, like you just said it, this is my show. I can do what I want. You can spend more time (laughs) with the stuff where normally the radio clock would have been going off in my head. Like, all right, we Mm got to get back to what happened in the game last night and veer back into that. And so it's another place where you can be more giving of the things that are of interest to you. And I think that's been the fun part is I've also figured out, like I'm interested in a lot of stuff, like passions at the top of the list, like, 
we've seen so much happen in college football and college sports recently. It's made me realize that my chief end in covering that sport is to make sure people understand and empathize a bit more with the players that are playing the sport. And then we do right by them as a core. We've all made a lot of money. I say we, like me and the college football media, the college sports media, we've made a lot of money off the backs of people who haven't been making money. And so the, the way that I can try and sleep at night and maybe that's, you know, Maybe it's still fruitless and it's it's something that I should morally grapple with more. But I'm like, all right, I have to make sure that I'm trying to do right by these young people that are in the middle of this that are steadily trying to get more rights and all that. So that's something I've come back to it as kind of like a real core why of like really trying to make sure I honor and tell those stories the best way I possibly can around that sport. And then, you know, for the rest of it, it is just really going back to like being a good teammate. Like I want to make sure that when... I talk to people and when I work with people, they feel like what they're doing matters. They feel like they've got a valued part in in that process. And Lord knows I'm not always perfect. I mess that up all the time. And I, you know, can want things my way just as much as everybody else. But I, I think if I was going to try and, you know, hopefully, you know, if I get to a point where, again, you know, find out what other people say about you, I, I'd like it to be, you know, he's a good teammate with the people that he works with there. He doesn't take, you know, sports too seriously but takes the serious parts sincerely enough and tries to do right by them which you know again super long-winded answer because that's all I give but I I think those are those are kind of the things that I've gravitated to are like you know doing right by those players the sense of community that sports can allow and making sure that that's used in the right way and then you know just going back to to being the family member that I want to be with the people that are actually close in my life it sounds like thank you for for that I, I like the long-winded answer. It's not a long-winded answer. It's supposed to be long-winded. And it sounds like you've really thought this through and have had to kind of adjust and re- reflect and reprioritize maybe some of your values and like what matters to you. And that's always changing. You know, the one thing that I kind of realized for myself and I tell other people too is that as we evolve and go, get older, our priorities and our values are going to change. And because of that, our needs and our aspirations are going to change. So if you were speaking to Mikey 2.0, what kind of advice would you give to him now? Um, I would say do a better job earlier putting up boundaries. It won't affect your career in the ways that you think it will. You know, when we're all kind of afraid to do that, I've gotten to your point a lot better at saying no to certain things and kind of understanding and seeing when I need a minute to just sit by myself and recharge or go be at a different spot and recharge there. Like I've gotten better at spotting that. And so I would say just be more mindful of that in the beginning. You know, don't worry as much about what everyone thinks of you. Like everyone says control what you can control. And it's hard because we're all human and we all feel it. You know, we, we feel the words that people say. We feel that, you know, we, we get inside our own head about that stuff. Like that would just be a general thing for me, both in this job and in life is get out of your own head a little bit more. Like it, it's not all as always as bad or as dire as you want to make it out, you know, relax. I've, I've said a couple of times, let your shoulders slump down a little bit, like just, you know, work hard and treat people the right way. And that'll, that'll get you to a good enough place to where, you know, the rest is going to be, you know, circumstance opportunity and all that stuff, you know, work hard, yeah. treat people the right way. I, I think that can get you a, a pretty, pretty good, a, 
pretty far down the right road that you want to be on. Yeah, boundaries. Yeah, it took me a while to figure that one out too. Uh, and you know, it's the, the one question that I had, and yet I find it odd or maybe poor interviewing that I'm asking it at the very end of the interview. But the the one thing that I learned about myself. So I was wrapping up my first internship. I had uh, you know over twenty to thirty clients. I was working at a college counseling center, and uh, I had to terminate what we call terminate, close out my relationship with with twelve of these clients, and it was really hard. And my supervisor kind of mentioned that how we process, how I'm processing this transition, will be similar to how I process previous transitions. And a lot of the times, what happens with transitions is a new chapter, but also saying goodbye to some things. So the one thing that I I was curious about your how you're processing your current transition, which involves saying goodbye to Connecticut, saying goodbye to the the Mikey twenty year old self and ESPN and the side of the family. Curious how you're processing this transition, and does it bring up any sort of commonalities or similar similarities to previous transitions, such as leaving football? Uh, yeah, I think there's an equal level of like nervous excitement. I always say, like, if you're nervous, that means you care, and that's usually a good thing. So with this, I've been nervous about the podcast because I, I've i been nervous about the podcast because I do care about, you know, how this goes. I do care about doing a good job. I do care that a new employer has put enough faith in me to invest in me and say, we believe that you can make something that people want. So, you know, there's nervous excitement about that. There's also the difference in this transition versus the last time is the last time it was nice to settle somewhere because, Mm. and I don't mean like settle for something. I mean like settle down because like you mentioned, I've been living off couches and out of hotel rooms for the better part of that three year stretch. And so to come back here, I, you know, I just sold my house out here that I've been in for six years. Like I hadn't been anywhere for six Mm. years since I was a kid growing up in my house in Connecticut with my parents. And so having a place to put down roots was really nice and getting to be around here and getting to have things I was familiar with was really nice. So this one's a little different. I have a great base of people that I know and love already, you know, where I'm going to be moving and being out on the West coast, but it's still a lot of newness. It's day to day. It's leaving behind the familiarity of those things. And I've kind of looked at it as a challenge to myself. It's all right. Like, Career-wise, this is a reset. You're going to be challenged in ways that are different from what you were doing at the previous job. And in some ways, that's exciting because there's a lot of potential. And so I'm trying to just sort of keep it open to whatever comes that way and try and take my hands off the wheel a little bit instead of (laughs) white-knuckle driving this thing. And so we'll see if I'm able to execute that. It's a fun thing to say right now as I'm getting ready to do this, but... I I think that's how this transition differs is it's a little more about like, I want to allow myself for some uncertainty because I had gotten in a really good, comfortable spot, but I realized, like I talked about, you know, personally and otherwise, there were things that I thought, all right, maybe I need to explore in a different way. And I've got the opportunity to try those now. So I've got to be mindful in the same way that I was mindful of taking every opportunity that was presented to me at work, chasing those down and busting my ass for those. I've got to be mindful of putting myself in position to grow in the areas I claim to want to grow in. Mm-hmm. Well, I and we 
here at the Next Chapter family. Wish you the best of luck. You're going to do amazing things. I'm so excited for you. I'm excited for your California trip and and new move and good luck with the show. I, I've listened to you know a couple of the episodes and it's awesome. You guys are going to be great. You're going to do great. And you're just a terrific human being. And maybe that's why I've interviewed you 17 times on the show. And I have like 18 episodes. <laughs> you know what? I am, I am honored. You have been always a fantastic friend. Uh, friend. You, and your, you and your husband, Ben, have been such awesome people to me. You know, while we were teammates at ESPN, now that, you know, we're all in different spots here. So Really appreciate that. Really appreciate this. I look forward to podcast number 18 at some point with you here. (laughs) Podcast number one on the Gojo podcast with you at some point down the road here as I get to now turn around and have conversations with my friends. So it's, it's a lot of fun and it's always really nice catching up. Yeah, it was it was awesome catching up and also taking this conversation in a different light. And I'm just going to throw it out there again. If by chance in the next several years you'd like to hit up the wedding industry, I do think there's a major future for you. There's a re- there's a reason why you keep getting invited to all these weddings. It's because you're such a phenomenal wedding guest. I, I mean, there there is some opportunity to be had there, Mikey. I had to dust off my dancing shoes, my sister's wedding, and then a friend of mine from Notre Dame got married in the last couple of weekends. And Prim, I just want to put it out there, the fastball still hums. So as Prim said, (laughs) if your wedding is in need of a party starter, look no further. I am available for hire. Just don't miss, don't make him miss his podcast, which yeah. now you don't have to worry about that because you don't have to come on at 7 a.m. in the morning. So you're good. All right, Mikey, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Prim. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to check out Mike's new show with DraftKings, Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. The next chapter with Prim Seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.